Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today in Camfield Marsh in the Solway AONB with author, illustrator and our guide for today, Mark Richards. Morning, Mark. Hello, David. How have you been? Well, actually, I'm just throwing off a bit of a chill. I'm hoping ah. I'll be able to cope today. <laughs> Getting over a bit of a cold, but the weather has improved dramatically today. I had a, a lovely drive here, even though I got slightly lost on route. Did your sat-nav say Wales? It did, yes. I'm not quite sure what happened there. Yes. Um, and I have to say, I've never been here before. I've not been to the Solway coast ever in my life, despite living up here for a number of years and having visited all over the lakes, I've never been to Solway Coast. You've been here a few times, of course, with the the wall. Oh yeah, Hadrian's Wall Path. Started researching that way back in 1991, and I keep updating that guidebook. And in the last edition, I included a walk of the coast path, which is going to be part of the England Coast Path, from Maryport all the way up to here. So I actually do know it quite well. My wife and I enjoy the coast here anyway. The bird life is always so special. And anybody who likes the seaside, uh, uh, but who really relishes being close to nature in a very dramatic setting, you certainly get it here. And who is our guest for today, Mark? Well, we have the ideal person for this setting, uh, Anne Lingard, who knows this area very well and has studied the area in great detail. So a walk across the common here and then along the seashore to talk a little bit about both the bird life and also this industrial heritage. Let's go and meet Anne. Remarkable day, and why aren't we so fortunate? We really are. We look at that blue sky everywhere. What a fabulous day! Late March, it's really bonny. I'd like to know a little bit about yourself. What drew you to this shore? Oh my goodness. Well, I grew up in Cornwall by the coast and my father and I used to go and guddle around and the rock pools and so on. And then, oh, for years I was in other places, London, Cambridge, Glasgow even. And eventually my husband and I moved back to this area and we drove along the Solway coast and I thought, oh my Lord, this is awful. It's all flat. (laughs) (laughs) I've been used to, to nice Cornish coves. It took me, I suppose, about a year of going down frequently and walking with the dog and just taking my time and looking and discovering what was there and in in all weathers I remember even being out in sleet at one stage and so then just discovering about the coast and gradually not only discovering about what was there in terms of natural history and scenery and the shore and so on but also I started then to meet people who worked along the Solway or worked on it and gradually it all grew up from that and I started researching and writing 
mind, just absolutely fell in love with the place. So, where are we planning to go today? We've just left the road where it said Rogers Scuff and uh, through to North Plain. We're going to go through various different sorts of scenery. We're going to walk along this track here, um, which is at the end of the Rogers Scuff Common. Um, which is part of the RSPB's Campfield Nature Reserve. So we're going to walk along the track, we're going to see old bits of peat bog, which was partly worked. Mm -hmm. We're then going to get to where the old Solway Junction Railway crossed the moss, uh, which was started being built in 1864, and we'll talk about that later. And, of course, hugely damaged the peat bog. Uh, we'll also in passing, see where Natural England and the RSPB are re-wetting it, which is really dramatic looking. Yeah. We'll go up onto Rogerscuff Drumlin itself, which is a little hill that's not very high, mm -hmm. and yet has the most stupendous view. Then we'll walk down across the nature reserve and see all the lovely bog plants and hopefully hear lots of birds. Uh, down through the reserve, onto the salt marsh on the edge of the Solway, so a completely different sort of um, habitat there, and look at the salt marsh and the shore. And hopefully then, if there's still time and we're not too exhausted, we'll end up near the stub, the railway embankment, which goes out into the Solway, which is the stub of the old Solway uh, viaduct, which went across to Anna. So there's going to be lots to see and do, and hopefully lots of nice sounds. And Anyway, in the sunshine, we could just sit and enjoy the sun, <laughs> couldn't we? <laughs> Absolutely, Anna. I find this remarkable because uh, when you contrast what we've normally done hitherto, this is just so rich, and yet to the ordinary eyes, you, you think, more. Well, what to, is that here? Actually, it is vibrant. So I'm looking forward to this. Me too. <laughs> Well, and we come to the first gate, and just beyond it, there seems to be a, an expanse of water, like a, a broad ditch, and then a rushed-covered area. This actually is part of the old peat bog. It not, you'd know looking at it now. It was for many years uh, put down to pasture for cattle. Oh, yes. Um, but then the, when the RSPB in Natural England took over this area, they started re-wetting. Now we've got the ditches have been blocked up, which were obviously originally to drain it for pasture. Mm -hmm. And so now we've got a nice expanse of water and there are rushes growing and a whole ochre brown expanse in front of us, just stretching into the distance really, isn't it? My farming experience would tell me that's about 30 to 40 acres of land area. And you can see that rushes are growing, junkers are growing up through it. And just now before we arrived actually, I just heard and caught sight of a snipe zigzagging, which was lovely. So yes, yeah, so this is gradually being re-wetted and it will eventually, I suppose, become proper peat bog. But we're talking decades here, you know, it's, mm. it's a long, long time to reverse the sort of... Um, well, I hesitate to say damage because this was used as pasture, but uh, mm. later on we will see damage. Yeah. But of course, people didn't always know what they were doing. They didn't appreciate the importance of peat bogs. No, quite um, But no. it's only now we understand that they're really, really important in all kinds of ways. We are so anthropocentric. It's all about serving us, an advantage to the human race. And I actually like to twist it the other way around and think, well, you know, we're just one species living mm. here, whereas surrounding us are going to be hundreds of species. And actually, this is their neighbourhood. This is where they live. Mm. We've turned it so that we are top of the, the, the hierarchy mm. and adapted everything to our use mm. and to make us happy, our health and well-being and things. Mm. But actually, you know, we should be looking at it the other way around yeah. and, and thinking about the animals and the plants. Well, we'll turn away now and go through the gate because 
the track leads on. It's slightly raised, thank goodness for that, because the uh, re-wetting of the area is pretty conclusively effective. <laughs> Mind your fingers. <laughs> Just faintly hear a crow in the distance. We're actually reaching the, a key point on the railway. I'm looking south, so I can see clearly down the line of it. And to the north, there's a fence line and there's a remains of a building which presumably was something to do with the railway. Where we're standing now is known as Roger Scuff Crossing and it was on the old Solway Junction Railway, um, which in itself is quite a story. They started building it in 1865. In fact, tomorrow, Tuesday 26th of March, is the sort of anniversary of the cutting the sod ceremony over at Annan. <laughs> and the plan was to build this railway essentially to cut off the Carlisle Gretna dogleg. The reason for it was to take hematite ore from West Cumberland up to Lanarkshire to the um, <coughs> furnaces there to, to turn it into iron and furnaces, steel. Right, yeah. And the <coughs> Brogdons, whose plan it was, they got their engineer, Brunleys, and he looked at it and he said, Yes, we'll come up from the River Wampoor, we'll have, which is to our south behind us, the way we're looking now, um, and it, we'll take it across Bowness Common and we'll go to the Solway and we'll build a viaduct across from Bowness on Solway to Annan and then we'll go on. So, I mean, it's a, a wonderful, grandiose infrastructure <laughs> plan. You know, yeah. what a fantastic idea. It's um, the nature of the age, wasn't it? Absolutely, yes. Think, <laughs> Nothing was impossible. Think big. <laughs> uh, the plan was then was to come across Bowness Common or Bowness Moss. Now, going back another step, Bowness Moss is one of the, what are now the South Solway mosses. They're all incredibly special uh, areas around here. They're called raised mires, raised bogs, because after the last um, glacial ice age, about 10,000 years ago, as the glaciers retreated, there were kind of hollows left. And these filled up with water and, of course, then sphagnum. And sphagnum moss, as you know, eventually gets compressed and forms peat and there's other vegetation. And this all sort of compressed down. But sphagnum sucks up water and grows upwards and leaves a kind of cushion of dead um, acidified material underneath it. So it just grows up and up. So these raised mires became domes. And the water table varied as well, didn't mm, it? The water. Yeah. Mm. And so, you know, here it was... At the time they were cutting through, it was probably uh, 40 feet thick, something Crikey. like that, or even more, 45 feet. how long feet. does peat take to get to that sort of depth? It's about uh, a centimetre every 10 years, something Crikey. like that. Now, there's a calculation. I know. Any Johnny Balls listening? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so they decided then that they would um, build this railway across the moss, uh, irrespective of the, the fact that... There have been attempts, George Stevenson attempted to build a railway across a moss further south. It was very, very difficult. You know, it's spongy, soggy land. So they started on the north side of the Solway. They started on the viaduct. They started down at Wampool building um, an, another viaduct there, a bridge. And it took them something like four years to build the railway across the peat bog here. So what they had to do, and I'm just explaining this so we can put in context what we're looking, um, if you want to build on peat, you try and drain it. So along the line of the railway track, the future railway track, they dug longitudinal ditches at one chain, 66 feet each side, yeah. and then cross ditches. And so 
if you cut the face of the peat, it's peat is essentially 90% water. So it's, all the water starts draining out. Mm. And people reported that water was running in river-like streams. And so it went south from the dome down to the River Wampel and north up to the Solway. So they were draining it. The peat um, along the track was sinking, but it just wasn't dry enough. So what they had to do in building the railway was put uh, lots and lots of bundles of wood, faggots, yes. uh, 90,000 faggots, apparently. A great flotation uh, of yes. them. Yes. And then they had to uh, put sleepers and then the rails and they kept testing it with trains and it was terribly um, uneven. Um, in places they then had to put double width sleepers and so on. You know, it took a long, long, long time. Trial and error. Yeah. And meanwhile, you have to think that there would have been a huge team of navvies working on this. Yes. Do but we this... know where any of them came from? No. This, I mean, a lot of them would have come from Ireland. It turned out that navvies followed round railway projects. Mm. But the extraordinary thing, the mystery to me, and I spent a lot of time looking into this, is nobody knows where they lived. Yes. You know, the Settle Carlisle Railway, there's a huge village. Yes. But here, I mean, there's hardly any vi little villages here. There couldn't have been anywhere much for people to stay. Did they build temporary shelters? Yes. And they had horses, they had carts, they had all their picks and shovels. There was all the, the wood, the faggots, the rails. Where, you know, where was it all? Whoever they were, they yeah. were both physically strong, but they were very resourceful mm. uh, and very wedded to one another. They worked together as a team. Wouldn't it be lovely if we could do that today? <laughs> yes. Navvies, reinvent navvies. That's right. <laughs> the navvy spirit. And apparently they ate and drank an enormous amount because they were so physically uh, busy. Occasionally, apparently, farm labourers would come and try and join the navvy gang, and it took them about two months to get catch strong up. enough to catch up. <laughs> so we're now at what's called, as I said, Roger Scuff Crossing, where the railway crosses over this track. Um, when the railway was eventually dismantled, which wasn't until about 1934, although it had stopped working in 1921, everything was taken away. So all you see now really is a raised embankment going all the way across Bowness Common. And in the years, uh, birch trees and hazel have colonised it. And it's early yet, they haven't got their leaves, but you can see these lovely silvery trunks and the sort of purpley-brown mm. twigs you get at this time of year. Now, when RSPB and Natural England took over this area to... Um, to try and restore the peat bog, what they had to do was try and stop all this water running away. So all around us, they've built uh, buns and dams and things, but along the line of the railway track, they built more dams, peat dams, metal dams, to stop the water flowing along these longitudinal tracks. Mm. So what you've ended up with, which we may go and look at in a minute, are these extraordinary dammed areas, um, which are stunning for wetland birds, and I've seen a, a harrier here too before. But the thing is, because the birch trees now have their feet in the water, they've all died. Oh, yeah. And so you get these wonderful silver skeletons. With Today, blue water will be reflected. So we yes. should actually climb over this gate and plod along the edge of the marsh. I scrambled over the gate, moved along by the fence, and we get uh, quite a close-up view of the skeletons of the trees and quite a, an expanse of water there just as we came in on the scene we saw some birds fly away do you know what they were Anne? it looked like a flock of widgeon actually they came up off of the water and i just saw a little wren we've got curlews 
intermittently calling again. I have actually seen otter droppings around here, which is really exciting right. too. Now, the, the, you've got that water's building up. To sustain it as truly acidic, uh, you've got um, the challenge of that farmland next door, the Rogerscuff. What we're looking up at is the drumlin rising up ahead of us and sort of green pasture and of course when there were cattle there would have been lots of really nitrogenous runoff from all the cattle uh, dunging and anything else that was put on the land. The important thing about peat bogs is that you don't want any external extra minerals coming in mm -hmm. and these raised mires they have a lovely word they're called ombrotrophic which means that they get all their um, any nutrients necessary from the rain and so they're actually very nutrient poor and that's the way they need to be for the plants particular plants to grow. Can you repeat that listeners ombrotrophic? Ombrotrophic lovely word and so to to stop the RSPB, to stop the um, nitrogen-rich runoff from the former farm, they've raised buns and dug pits so that the uh, runoff is captured and doesn't go down onto the rest of the bog. Of course, all this area was once greatly glaciated, great ice sheets running across here. Ice movement creates deposits, and that's where you get these great drumlins uh, that uh, form at certain spots. You get eskers, uh, which you get in the Eden Valley, where you get sandy knolls and ridges. And here you get these little pillow mounds, great pillow mounds. And Roger's Scuff is set upon one of those. And the greater area isn't like that. It's just lower and is prone to bog. And that's what this common is. Bones Common is a thoroughgoing bog right on the shores of the Solway Firth. It's a lovely spot to be wandering along a properly hedged lane, Anne, hawthorn, blackthorn. And here we've got the beginnings of the spring growth in the blackthorn and uh, evidence of laying on the left-hand side. They're quite young hedges. It looks about five years. Yeah. I have to say, I think the hedge laying, this Cumberland style, is brutal oh. when you <laughs> compare the Western. I, it just appalls me. You see hedges just slashed down, oh, and hacked gosh. and laid. But it's, thank goodness they do recover. Yes. Um, and these are thickening up beautifully. And I've walked along here in the spring and they've been full of birds. And there's a, even some blossom there. Is that blackthorn, Anne? It's blackthorn, yes. And quite often at this time of year when the blackthorn comes out, you get a really cold snap, which is known as the blackthorn winter. But I <laughs> hope we're over the cold snaps now. I've come to a sharp corner on the track with Roger Scuff up to my left. And I'm looking back east now, Anne. Uh, and to the north, I can see Burnswark, striking a little tabletopped hill. But below us, I can see the expanse of the mosses and the alignment of the railway. Lark. Can you hear the lark? There it is, I can see it out there. It's cruel when you don't want to talk. I know, just to listen. We're standing almost at the top of Roger Scuff Drumlin, it's all green around us now and you can see that they're obviously digging out some more um, pools to stop water flow but we're looking down onto the uh, bonus moss common now aren't we and you can see this lovely sort of oaken brown and uh, over to the north is a line of woodland which is proper bog woodland which mm -hmm. seems to be self-seeded oh look and above us there's what's that is that a buzzard flying over us 
Well, that's sharp-eyed. Indeed yes. it is. And the thing I just saw, you mentioned the line of the railway track. You can just see this line of dead birches heading up north towards the Solway. And I just saw the brown shape. I can still see it. You see there's a tree down there. And if, if you look above it, there's a brown shape and a white bottom. And it's a deer just ambling along by the line of the track there. Isn't that Amazing. fantastic? You've got sharp just... eyes. Anne. It's a roe deer. <laughs> yes, it's Absolutely a roe deer. loving it. It's interesting. When the Romans came to this area... They identify the native people here as Carvetti, the dwellers among the deer. Really? Gosh, there must have been a lot. And the other thing there used to be a lot of here, I once uh, met uh, Dot Harrison, who used to farm here about 10 years ago, up, up at the farm on top of the Drumlin. And she said when they farmed here, she would never go out in the common in the summer because there were so many adders. I've heard this from lots of other people. There used to be lots and lots of adders on all these Solway mosses. Well, we've hit a lovely little spot here, Anne. It'll lean on a wall, rare bit of wall actually, with a nice parapet, just beyond the farm buildings. Red brick, late 19th century, early 20th century farmstead. Looks a bit ruinous at the moment, but I'm sure it'll be restored over the course of time. But the view from here, we are raised sufficiently. You can see Anthorn, the masts, and is it true that they are there gathering information from submarines or something. That's what I've heard. And it's also the place where the pips get sent out, the time pips. Right. <laughs> Which is nice to right, think, isn't, isn't it? it? Yes. Well. And there's a wonderful pip of a curlew. And we can look across the common, the marsh there ahead of us, towards Criffle, which is quite a striking hill. I know somebody up in Dumfriesshire who said, Criffle, huh, we've got better mountains than that. But from here, I can assure you, it looks pretty handsome. Cast the eye round to the right towards Burnswark, above the town of Annan, the destination of the Solway Junction Railway. And you can see Chapel Cross, the remains of a nuclear plant. Um, and then round towards the Langham Fells. But principally here, uh, the other direction, we can look back to the south and skidder. Wow, look at that. A very elegantly shaped peak. Uh, it's a Munro. <laughs> it's 3,000 foot. And to the right of that, the fells, the northwestern fells towards Grassmoor. And to the left of skidder, you can see Blencathra, but it doesn't look as impressive from this angle. But to the left of it, you've got High Pike and Carrick Fell. So the great mass of fells to the south of Colbeck. So we're looking down now from our height of 75 feet or something like that, down onto Bonus Common or Bonus Moss. And it's lo I love the sort of ochre colours and you get the dark where there's heather. What we're looking at here, we're looking across to the Solway Firth, which is so special, mm. that finger of sea between Scotland and England. And now we're going to walk down onto the common. It's about the only raised mire in the Solway area that isn't really damaged. Mm -hmm. It's fairly pristine in the middle. 
But round the edges, of course, there were villages round the edges and people had commoners' rights. They could put cattle on. Oh, it was incredibly boggy. Mm -hmm. um, they also had peat-cutting rights round mm -hmm. the edges. So there is peat-cutting damage, peat damage round the edges as well. But now we're going to walk down onto the actual real Bowness Moss. We've seen where the railway cut across it. We've seen what's been done to improve that. And now we'll just head down onto some wonderful, pristine moss. It's a lovely surface to walk on, isn't it? And this boardwalk, we've come off the track down the slope and then through the grassland and then we come onto the boardwalk uh, having gone through a, an area where this bit of, bit of ditch opened up. But now we've come to a, a pond area surrounded by, well, on one side with silver birch and bog myrtle and heather. Uh, and this pond has been created for a purpose. What would that be? It's particularly good for dragonflies mm -hmm. and damselflies. Um, I've been here, I think on Bonus Common, I came here with somebody who knew about them. We count about 11 different species. How it's quite fabulous. amazing, actually. Yeah. We don't have to think about sort of iconic species like dragonflies. I mean, looking around, I've already seen quite a few other insects. There was a tortoiseshell butterfly. We've got some nice green sphagnum moss growing here, one of the, the typical bog mosses and there are all kinds of other plants. It's too early in the year, really, to guess what's here. But I know I've seen things like cranberry growing here. There's mm -hmm. um, bog rosemary with the little pink flowers. And you get a wonderful diversity of things just along the edges of the boardwalk. And the other lovely thing on the boardwalk, and maybe we have to tiptoe at some stage, is when it's sunny, lizards come out to oh, sunbathe. But lovely. they're really quick. And of course, if they hear us or feel the vibration, they'll be gone. Absolutely. But if I scream, lizard, <laughs> <laughs> I have to stand still and we'll look for it. <laughs> we've come off the great open space, Anne, and we've come into proper little birchwood, which is a, a real pleasure to come into. That tree's fallen eastward. That's, of course, because of the prevailing wind off the Solway. But uh, this is a, a lovely contrasting environment and still got a little bit of board walking as well just yes. periodic no leaves out yet but already chaffinches singing i heard some blue tits just now and yes there's a, a great variety again we've got rush and bracken and and these birches some of which look as though they've been coppiced don't they multiple trunks coming out and i've certainly seen deer on the edges here it's just on the very edge of the common so i suppose they're all self-seeded so just a nice little bit of different uh, countryside to walk through, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you are definitely in nature's garden here. This is some way that you wander, like many people wander through formal gardens. This is your garden, isn't it, really? I wish it were. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I should think for the last 19 years, I've spent a lot of time wandering around, well, both sides of the Solway, but not only the coast, but also onto these wonderful raised mires and on the salt marshes and just along the margins of the Solway because there's such a diversity. Every time you come down, it's different. You know, there's changing seasons. For example, on the, on the mosses here and in the woods, 
it's always different, different colours, different animals, different plants. And the shore, of course, you know, varies twice a day mm. with the tides. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just always, always changing, whether I come on my own or with other people. Mm. We just see different things and mm. never get bored of it. Well, you're opening my eyes all the time. <laughs> Well, that's great, yes. I don't want to open too many people's eyes. I don't Ooh. want too many people here. Well, very discerning <laughs> group of people listen to Country Stride. That's good. Well, we come past North Plain, the visitor centre, and I noticed over to the right, as you came through the car park area, you can see a Clay Davin building there as well. This is a part of the pattern of building that goes back in time. Uh, who, who built that one? That was built as part of the Solway Wetlands Project, Heritage mm -hmm. Lottery Fund. Um, and it's a mixture of local mud and mm. straw all compacted together. With a thatch roof of some sort? Um, with a heather thatch roof, but underneath it a wonderful timber oak construction, which the joiner made, which is absolutely beautiful. Mm. I was here the day they uh, raised high the roof beam. <laughs> <laughs> How and it was just a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting little building. It looks a bit like a Wendy house. No. But it shows you the old technique and it also shows people who live in existing Claydabin buildings how they can mend them and right. how planners should deal with it as well. It's the lovely. I love vernacular mm. and that's very true to this space. So we passed through the car park and came onto the road and slipped through a galvanised gate and we're, here we are on the shores of the Solway and wow. Tide is still very low and we're in big tides at the moment. And looking out here, you think you almost think you could walk across to Scotland, couldn't you? Yeah. Of course you couldn't, <laughs> though I have done so a little bit further up. Um, but here you've got the channels of the Esk and the Eden. Uh, that's where most of the water is at the moment, way out towards the Scottish side. And in front of us, from the edge of the salt marsh, you can just see mud flat and sandbank just stretching on and on. And it's mm. just this lovely sort of calm blue ribbon we can see can't we, of the water. And here and there you've got little outcrops of uh, pebbly shore. And over to our left we've got Criffle again. And before you get to Criffle you can see a whole row of stakes sticking up, which is the remains of an old fish trap, probably. Oh, right. And there are birds out there, aren't there? There are oyster catchers and other waders and birds singing in the hedges just up by the road. It is a stunning place, isn't oh, it? Uh, your mention of the stakes reminds me of the what I understand as the meaning of the name Solway. Wath, Solwath, Solomwath, the ford marked by stakes. And there will have been cattle driven across that estuary in times past. I would like to think of it as a, a finger of water that divides but also unites the two countries because there are many customs in common. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, the heritage fishing, the half netting, uh, which is thought to derive from Viking times because mm -hmm. the big frame of the net, uh, the top of it is supposed to be the length of a Viking oar. Well, now, did you <laughs> know that? It's a huge rectangular wooden structure with three wooden verticals in it. I've actually been half netting very close to here at Bowness. You have to go with someone. They have a license from the Environment Agency. And you wade out into the firth as it's coming in with this net and you hold the net in the water and the water's coming up your chest you know, you're getting <laughs> deeper and deeper and the idea yes. is that any salmon swimming upstream they might swim into your net and you can feel that and the half net will then flip the net very quickly yep. and get the, the salmon out and if it's the wrong size or whatever or the wrong fish throw it back or or stun it and, and keep it, it has yes. a sack over his back Right. Yep. but 
it's in danger of dying out because... Right. Um, numbers are down. Numbers of salmon are down. Price of licences has gone up. There are all kinds of difficult... Conflicting Conflicting factors. views. Mm. Now, of course, the name Firth uh, implies the Scottish description of the estuary, Firth being a, a version of fjord, uh, but this is a very shallow one. But there is a tidal range here. What would you describe yes. that? Um, up at this upper Solway area, it's not quite so huge, obviously. But further down, I mean, on a really, really big spring tide, when the moon and sun are in alignment, you can get it going 10 metres. So that's from the chart datum, as it were, zero, up to, you know, 30, 35 feet. Nice. And that's twice a day. Wow, I when like. I take people on low tide walks further down at Allenby, I try to get them to, to imagine this because that's a huge volume of water, isn't it's it? It's rushing in. Rushing in. Rushing out again. Rushing in. Rushing out twice in the day. And you mentioned earlier on, Anne, that you actually crossed the estuary totally from coast to coast yourself. Yes, I did, actually. Yes, I crossed with Mark Messenger, who's one of the half-netters. And, uh, of course, the half-netters know the tides, they can read the water. I wouldn't cross with anyone else, obviously. And, of course, we crossed at very low tide, as and you can imagine. And he's the man from the, uh, the Highland, Highland Laddie. Yes, <laughs> he does the half-netting, yes. Uh, we were going to come across on this westerly side of the viaduct, but we met some other half-netters and they said, oh, no, the Esk Channel has changed. It's much deeper, the far side. So we crossed, actually, from Bowness mm -hmm. and waded out, Mark carrying his half-net. He said, just in case we find anything the other side. But it was really nice for him, because I knew perfectly well that if he thought I was scared, he would jam it in and I could hold on to it and whimper. <laughs> but I managed not to whimper and I managed not to hold on to it. And the water was above our knees. It was quite fast flowing, actually. Yeah, and if you stopped, be. you could feel the the uh, the riverbed getting sucked away. I know, because so I, I crossed the Morecambe Bay and I had that mm, sensation. Yes. So y for you... It took us about 25 minutes going across to step, set foot in Scotland, yeah. on the mud, <laughs> mud of Scotland. And then we potted around a bit and then it took us about 20 minutes coming back. It was a tremendous experience, oh, actually. Yes. I, I was really pleased to have done it. That's absolutely amazing, looking through these little runnels leading on to the mudflats. Uh, we'll have a little wander down there now ourselves. It really merits wading a bit. Fascinating, because that initial bit back there, we were coming across st a stony, gravelly area almost. And the, the stones had little squiggly white squiggles on them. What was that? Those were the footprints of little snails, mud snails, which, of course, have a big foot underneath. And as they crawl over the mud, they pick up mud. Ah. And as they crawl over the stone, they leave this wonderful hieroglyph. Yeah, it's very artistic. It's artistic indeed. Now, we got onto the sands itself. Uh, and there's a lot of white shells lying here. What shells are those, do you think, Anne? These will be shells of what a burrowing bivalve mollusk called a telin. And they live buried in the sand. These are half shells, so obviously dead snails. Yep. But um, So we can see quite a lot here. These funny little lumps we see sticking up. Inside there will be U-shaped tubes. Yep. Probably, oh, could be as long as 10 centimetres deep. And these are the homes of a little creature called the mud shrimp, which is oh, the most a centimetre long. And they live down in the burrows, and a U-shaped burrow, and they circulate the water inside. And if I had a spade and dug it up, you would see this amazing 
a colony of little yeah. shrimps. You can also see little places where they've uh, squiggled around on the surface when the water is in. They can swim and crawl and they hunt around. They feed on um, sort of algae, on, mm -hmm. on uh, sand particles. They also feed on other um, material within the muds. They're quite uh, adaptable. Yeah. But if you yeah. look at the number of little holes there, there are just oh. tens of thousands. How many holes it takes to fill the Abbott <laughs> Hall, I don't know. It's amazing. The, the estuary you're looking at, I see, I see a white bird. It looks like an egret, I, I would guess. The bird life here, and particularly the wading birds, are, are quite substantial. Yes, I mean, people who know much more about wading birds than I do, they come here to do counts. And, you know, there are thousands, tens of thousands of oyster catchers. They see curlews. Uh, uh, at the moment, we can hardly see anything. It's because the tide's so far out. So they'll all be hunting down next to the edge of the shore or they'll be flying somewhere over there. As the tide comes in, they get pushed up the shore. So towards high tide, that's when you get the huge flocks. Right. And the other thing we're not seeing, some flew over us as we were out on the, the bog there, were big flocks of the pink feet geese and the barnacle geese. These all come down from Svalbard and Iceland and Greenland over the winter. And, you know, again, there are tens of thousands of them all it's, grazing on the grass. It's and, because we're talking about birds that have flown great distances across great oceans to get here and this is a destination it's crazy isn't it and they come down here and they fatten up and then they fly all the way back there <laughs> to breed in the summer months <laughs> amazing well this has been a, a crossing point as well for humans it's the sands of time and place in sense and uh, the romans came here and the people before them uh, will have come across here because this is very much an interface. Uh, we call, think of it as England and Scotland, but actually it's been an interface of, of tribes, of people uh, that relate to one another. There's the famous one, Edward I, who built all those castles in Wales and so forth and was always at, seemed to be at war, <laughs> uh, mostly with the Scots. He was known as the Hammer of the Scots. For some reason, it didn't parley with them at all. The last six months of his life, he was at Lanacost, and with his failing health, he, he said, strap me to a horse and I'll assault the Scots. Uh, and so on the uh, last day of his life, he was drawn across the estuary, but then he died and his body was interred in the church at Bruff by Sands. And then he went on to home culture and so on. So there's a, a, a man in history for whom the Solway was uh, the end point of his great warring days. You're looking out at something really special here. Just acres and acres of mud flat and then fringed by the salt marsh. It is extraordinary, isn't it? Mm. We'll wander on a little bit further, I think. Mm. Well, we're coming right up close to the viaduct, well, the abutment that led to it. And I find that quite staggering bit of stonework that leads uh, to uh, what will have been a pretty substantial viaduct. 1,940 yards long with 193 piers. A significant bridge in its time. In the 1860s, yes. I mean, that was all part of the Solway Junction Railway to take, as we were saying earlier, the hematite from West Cumberland across to Lanarkshire. And... Yes, it was originally planned, the viaduct, to be a lot shorter and the embankments to be much longer. But then they realised that by constricting the Solway there, you would cause major changes in flow, which would be quite a dangerous thing. So, in fact, the embankments were built 
a little bit shorter and the viaduct was very much longer, as you were saying. It was cast iron and it, it had, as you say, 192, 193 piers going across, each of which was six pillars. Quite an extraordinary mm. uh, thing. The metalwork was made in in the Edinburgh area. But the sandstone, if you look at the uh, embankment there, you have to realise, of course, that there were no power cranes. This was all done by humans and levers. Wow. And so the sandstone blocks, some of which, oh, are five feet long, all beautifully partially dressed and slotted together. There's a kind of packed um, clay centre to the embankments, and then this beautiful curved um, outside, and of course a, a very nice sandstone top. Uh, onto which the viaduct was built and went across. But the, the viaduct itself, you know, it was built from steam barges in the Solway, which mm. had cranes, oh. which, no health and safety in those days, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this stuff was being hoisted up high. They had to work at high tide. As soon as the tide dropped, because the barges had to go scooting back into Annan or wherever. So it, it took them couple of years at least to build the viaduct. That's phenomenal. How long did it last, do you think? I think the first train came across in about 1868. And then, of course, trains couldn't go across Bowness Common until, or, or passengers, until 1870. So then it sort of came into its heyday. Um, then 1881, so only, you know, 12 years later or something like that, it got substantially damaged in a big um, freeze-up at the end of January 1881 when huge ice flows formed in the upper Solway at a neat tide, so low tide, so they must have formed on the mud flats and uh, along the banks of the river. Then spring tides came and lifted up these sheets of ice, which were massive apparently. You read about wow. it, six feet thick, you know, some at least 10, 20 feet long. And they were lifted up and came tearing down the Solway, crashed into the viaduct, caused a lot of damage. Then the next incoming tide whooshed them up. So for two days, they were sloshing backwards and forwards. And really? they, they damaged, oh, oh, at least a third of the piers. Yes. And there's some wow. wonderful photos taken later that year of the rails just hanging. <laughs> it's wow. quite extraordinary. That must have radically changed its economic status. Well, it, it was unusable. Unusable. It was recovered mm. eventually, after some extent. It was. But not really as an industrial bridge. It, it was eventually recovered. I should say that at the time of when it was being uh, so damaged, pieces were falling off the steel and striking sparks, and people were coming to see this sort of light show in the evening, wow. at night. But also some workmen, I found a little snippet in a newspaper uh, called A Hair in a Fix, and they, they'd seen a little ice flow with a hair on it. It's like a sort of reverse uh, polar bear icon, isn't it? <laughs> you know, this was a, an animal on an ice flow when it, the climate was really, really cold and cold. <laughs> yes, so for several years the viaduct couldn't work at all. Eventually a petition was raised to Parliament and money was found to rebuild it. And um, eventually they, they got traffic going again, uh, rather lighter trains and so on. It had lots of problems along the way. It became uneconomic to run it, essentially. Cheaper haematite was being imported. Uh, it didn't make sense to, to keep this rather expensive thing going. So by about what, 1920 or so, it ceased operating altogether and the metalwork was removed and, and we see what it is today. Yes. Amazing. Yeah. And now one of our regular listeners, Eric Horn from Stackhouse Farm with his Bird Oswald cheese, 
he uh, communicated with me when he knew I was meeting you. He said, uh, people crossed it on foot, didn't they? He said, to get fish and chips, but... <laughs> fish and chips. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the story it's about? Beer. <laughs> <laughs> the story is, of course, that on Sunday, Scotland was dry. Ah. And, of course, the Bowness pubs were not. <laughs> so people used to come across from Scotland to, to visit the pubs in Bowness, of which there are more than there are now. And then, of course, stagger their way back across. And, of course, I mean, the viaduct was in quite a bad state. It's a wonder nobody fell through and died, actually. Really. <laughs> so the Highlands. <laughs> Laddie at Glasson was a Highland Laddie from Scotland. It could have been, it could have been. How amazing. Yeah. Yes, anyway, Anne, this is uh, that, that critical moment in Country Stride where we do quick fire questions that uh, bring out your instant reaction and your sense of place and uh, ad- adoration of Cumbria. Uh, where is your favourite lake in the Lake District? It'd probably be Buttermere. There you are. Well, favourite town? Cockermouth. Fabulous. Oyster catcher or curlew? Curlew. Absolutely. Isn't that a wonderful sound? And they nest quite near us at home too. In fact, we have a starling in the garden who mimics a curlew. So we have our very own <laughs> curlew starling who catches me out every day. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Uh, Wordsworth or Wainwright? Neither, actually. Norman Nicholson. <laughs> Nicholson certainly saw the geology and the industry and how people lived in the landscape and just absolutely nailed it. I absolutely. Mm. Uh, if you could bring back somebody from history or from the present day who you would like to take out for a walk, who would it be? Do you know, I would love to bring back my father because he would have loved this and he would have loved to have come and guddled on the shore. He was the one who taught me to guddle in rock pools and things, and he'd be absolutely thrilled to see this. Spending good time with you has been a special treat, Anne, and we on Country Strike greatly appreciate the time you've given to us. You've been a wonderful guide. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you. I've absolutely loved it, because any day coming out here with anybody, <laughs> even your bad jokes, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> My bad jokes? Oh. It's been great. Thank you. Journey's End Mark at the RSPB Centre here. I've loved this. I have to say, I, I'm ranking this in my top five. Yep, uh, out of five, episodes. this is in that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is what's this? This is the 13th or something? I'll tell you why. I said at the start, I've never been here before. Wow, how lovely are these big open skies that you don't really associate with Cumbria, do you? No, this is Norfolk. More but kind of, all yeah. the way around, you can see mountains. All yeah. set well back. That's right. Yeah. But you, you're tantalised. Birdsong the whole way. We saw uh, all kinds of wildlife. And also this mix of habitats. Mm. The bogs, the salt marsh, which was lovely, wasn't it? Mm. Uh, and, and those expanses of mud looking into, into Scotland. Yeah. You've got to stop and get close to the texture of it to really understand how brilliant it is. Now, we're on a bit of a roll here, Mark, because after doing a spell of country strides in the High Fells, we're avoiding them yet again on the next country stride, aren't <laughs> we? We're, we're well outside the National Park. What, what have you got planned for us? Well, Sheila Gordon, who is a great champion of Lady Anne Clifford. Lady Anne Clifford, who is... 
give us a very brief. Oh goodness me! I'm, one I'm sentence. Hoping, one sentence. Uh, she's with the, with the Countess of Pembroke, uh, uh, Countess of Thanet uh, and Dorset. Uh, she was a well-connected lady in the 17th century, who transcend her age in her uh, defiant claiming of the rights for women. She was a, well, that a was suffragette. An, that, that had a lot of sub-clauses, but you did manage it. <laughs> well, yeah, well done. But she, this is Sheila Gordon, created a journey, a walk at Lady Anne's Way mm. from Skipton to Penrith, right. and we are going to walk a section of that in Malastang. Malastang, yeah. One of my favourite named valleys. Yeah, it's got a wonderful ring to it, doesn't it? it has, Near yeah. Kirby Stephen. Yeah. And we're walking down the highway. Right. So that's Country Stride 14, Malastang on Lady Anne's Way. The usual general housekeeping, Mark. Listeners who've enjoyed this, you can listen to previous episodes at www.countrystride.co.uk. People who use social media, where can they find us, Mark? Country Stride 1 on Facebook and Twitter. Right, yes, please do uh, drop, drop us a line, say hello. Uh, if you've got any suggested walks for us, we're, we're all ears for that kind of thing. Uh, and favourite days out that you've had, also love to hear that as well. Um, but for now, from the two of us, it's been lovely to share this fantastic area of the Solway Coast here. And we look forward to having you with us again on the next Country Strike.